Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the global revolt against the elites, the Tory leadership contest and the grooming gangs scandal. So people have seen some of the footage from Sri Lanka at the weekend with hordes of people essentially storming the presidential palace, taking selfies, jumping in the pool. There's also a very serious side to this, of course. The country has essentially collapsed. Uh, the president has fled to Singapore. I mean, Tom, how does this play into a kind of broader trend? This is not just about Sri Lanka. No, I think there's a really international dimension to this. I mean, Brendan wrote about this on Spiked this week, where, as you say, the situation there is very, very serious. Um, the economy is really in the toilet. It's about half a million people have been plunged into poverty. And it seems like the two big factors that are worth talking about here get to what you're talking about. One of which is, of course, is the impact of the COVID lockdowns. Mm. This is something that people were saying from the very beginning was that the impact of um, turning off the world's economy would have a particularly pernicious impact on the third world, on the developing world, on um, countries that couldn't rely on the kind of economic relative strength of other nations. And we've seen that play out in Sri Lanka. It obviously hit their tourism industry terribly, which they're very reliant on, but also just the knock-on effects in terms of production and trade have been dreadful for it. And then the other thing is is eco-orthodoxy, because the leadership of Sri Lanka had become particularly kind of keen exponents of a lot of those sorts of green policies, um, mm. banning things like fertilisers um, and pesticides coming into the country, which has had a disastrous impact on domestic agriculture you know something like rice yields are down like 43 percent or something crazy it's had this tremendous impact and whilst of course that's a decision that was taken by one particular government in one particular country it was with the kind of cheering and encouragement of the international campaigning ngo set so i think what we're seeing here is we're seeing a lot of countries that we'll probably get into in a second is um people who are being plunged into very serious um poverty or having their liberty stripped of them because of these decisions and these orthodoxies of the laptop classes, but also a, a pushing back as we're seeing um, in quite colourfully in Sri Lanka at the moment. Yeah. I mean, sticking with the kind of green theme, that seems to be the overriding reason why farmers in the Netherlands are fighting back. So clearly, obviously the Netherlands is not in the same situation as Sri Lanka, but there are, there are deep problems there with, you know, people being told that they have to cut their nitrogen emissions, having to get rid of livestock, you know, these kind of normal normal things like farming just simply cannot continue under these kind of green pressures. I mean, what have you made of that, Ella? Well, it's funny in a context, you know, political context in which people are so obsessed with looking to the experts and taking expert opinion. And that was something that was a key kind of theme throughout um, the pandemic years. When it comes to food security and farming, Mm. no one wants to listen to farmers. Yeah. And no one wants to, you know, in relation to what was going on in Sri Lanka, I mean, people were saying from the start, if you ban uh, fertilizer from coming in, you know, 90% of our farming is based on the production of it is, is reliant on fertilizer this is going to be disastrous. No one listened. Of course, it was disastrous. Um, and, th- you know, the same is happening in other countries, which is rather than talking about how you would innovate around making farming more productive, mm. greener, if if that's an important thing to you, more efficient, you know, that's yeah. the key thing, but getting more um, yield for what you put into the ground. They just say, no, no, we have to revert. So you end up, you know, the whole focus on something like organic farming is really just sort of prehistoric farming. Mm. It's it's like throw something in the ground, see see what nature comes up with. Yeah. It's completely uncontrolled, in a, you know, which is made a virtue of. But it means that then when you, you know, it's very unsurprising that then you suddenly have nations talking about um, lack of food resources, you know, even in 
this country, which is in no way comparable to what's going on in Sri Lanka, you have people scratching their heads saying, well, we've got a kind of, we've got a wheat shortage. And that means that maybe we won't be able to feed our chickens. And, And then at the same time, you've got endless sort of BBC shows praising people who have turned their vast acreage um, farms into over to rewilding. Yeah. It's like something's not connecting there. Do you think, I mean, Tom, what is it about greenism that makes our ruling class just suddenly forget what their jobs are? I mean, if things like as basic as food security can just be thrown out the window or energy security, you know, with the current crisis seems to be sacrificed mm. quite easily at the altar of greenism. Yeah, I don't really know why. I mean, it's become a core mission of the sort of international elite, essentially. Um, they see it as something, you know, they don't really know what they're about a lot of the time. Um, and so they're saving the world. I mean, mm. who doesn't want to save the world? It's become a kind of mean through which they've been able to give themselves that sense of mission and purpose. But what it also demonstrates at the same time is that they've become completely detached from any kind of sense that they exist to better the living conditions of the people in their own countries. Um, just that kind of simple thing of people's lives getting better, people, uh, nations getting wealthier, mm. all of that has been dispensed with. Um, so it's it's an interesting one in terms of how, how this has come about, but it's almost like, they, it, I, in a sense, I think the more detached they became from that kind of more simple kind of bread and butter project, the more they went looking around for these things and they found them in the most faddish and damaging orthodoxies, unfortunately. One, one of the other movements that um, particularly the kind of Dutch farmers has been tied to is that was the Freedom Convoy in, in Canada. I mean, there seems to be some commonalities, particularly in the reaction to it, the elite reaction to it, you know, these people being beaten down by the police, smeared as fascists and often sort of outright ignored by the media. I mean, a lot of people in Britain might not know that there's this huge revolt going on in, you know, continental Europe, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because it's it it's seen as the revolt of the great unwashed. It's mm. all these like you know filthy truckers with their gas guzzling um, vehicles, or you know that you can't deny the sort of a symbolism of what's going on in Sri Lanka. You know these people who are, are you know poverty stricken going in and jumping into these incredibly palatial you know swimming pools, and it it it's I think we're at a point where things are very visceral. Mm. That it's not really just a kind of people being squeezed. That you are actually seeing, and we saw it, it you know in relation to the Gilets Jaunes in France as well, that there are people who are suddenly finding themselves destitute in, you know, not able to make ends meet in a very kind of, in a very visceral way, who are thankfully, because there's a lot of sort of political apathy around, have decided to do something about it. That's what was so inspiring about what was going on in Canada, because yes, we can sit here and say there was lots of conflictual things going on within that protest and there still is. And that's what happens with leaderless kind of genuinely Mm. organic movements is that some of it's pretty bad some of it's pretty good you know you take the rough with the smooth but the inspiring thing was that they were very defiantly saying in the face of you know a leader justin trudeau who just was so wildly out of touch in like quite comparable to where the sri lankan um you know politically is saying you have no idea what's going on so we're going to take over and i think you're going to see that more and more and more i mean in a very small way you saw it in the uk with uh, some of the motorway protests in the last few weeks mm. but i think we're going to see more of that Tom, do you think this is part of a kind of wider populist movement? Do you think that's a fair way of putting it? I think it's one of the expressions of it, definitely, um, because it pushes back against all the kind of things that a populist movement would seek to push back against. Um, And I think one of the reasons that we don't hear about it so much is the sort of people in politics who would expect to be interested in this kind of bottom-up thing are really allergic to this kind of thing. The left, I'm talking about more broadly. Partly, I think, because um, these movements exist. Um, if you think about something like the the truckers or the Gilets Jaunes as well, 
outside of the left it can't mm. contain it it can't lead it and that really pisses them off mm. and as a consequence there's a tendency to give in to all of these elite prejudices that they're all a bunch of hicks basically yeah. um but also because on a lot of these issues that these people are pushing back against green orthodoxy covid orthodoxy lockdown whatever uh, the left lined up with the establishment on those questions, as they did on the EU or as on all sorts of other issues. So I think we are going to see more of them. I think one of the things that's so encouraging about them is that they are, in that sense, a working class pushback, which exists outside of a left that no longer wants anything to do with them, to be mm. completely frank. But I think we will definitely see more of it. It just shows that you can kind of push it down in one area and it's going to pop up in another. I think that's been the story of the last couple of years, definitely. So the Tory leadership is getting into its stride. We've now got five candidates left. There's been some colourful figures in the sense of Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman's now out. Jeremy Hunt is now out. Thank God, you might say. <laughs> um, Penny Morden is an interesting figure too. Well. <laughs> I mean, interesting in inverted commas. Yeah. Uh, Rishi Sunak storming out the front still. Uh, Tom, is there, have you got any favourites? Have you any anyone that isn't awful? Oh, quite, that way? <laughs> quite uninterestingly, I'm... Um, wrote a piece this week back in Kemi Badenoch um, mm. as the, I, I genuinely think the Tories um, would be mad not to take a chance on her because of the fact out of the whole field, she's the only one who is, who is saying something interesting and takes the culture war seriously, mm. um, which is not to suggest that the culture war is everything, but it's a big part of the current dividing lines in politics, actually. Um, and really, to be honest, a lot of other issues, there's not a huge amount of difference between them, to be perfectly blunt. You know, none of them have a particularly distinct or different view for the economy or for how to get us out of this mess. Yeah. But um, her stance, I think, is very compelling um, in relation to those questions of culture, in relation to gender. Um, she's someone who clearly has a lot of conviction and can articulate that point very well. Um, and I think... It, I think, especially given the dearth of ideas in the rest of the party, you know, like the Penny Morden, who, as far as we can tell, I'm sure we'll get into a um, backpedalling on her various positions on things, is a complete cipher. I think part of her popularity is that people are just projecting yeah. a sense of unity or a sense of whatever onto her rather than anything particularly substantial. But yeah, I think that the Tories, given the sort of mess that they're in, they don't really know why they got rid of Boris Johnson. They don't really know what they're for. <laughs> I think Baynock genuinely pre presents something which could give them something to run with, but it's almost certainly clear that she won't make it to the final two. The culture war really is where the energy is, I think. I mean, you know, you, you talked about the dearth of economic ideas. There seems to be two positions which are cut taxes now or cut taxes mm. later. That's basically all the only idea flowing around. In terms of the culture war, I mean, the big issue has been transgender mm -hmm. questions. I mean, what have you made of that, Ella? I'm probably more jaded about the whole thing and that I think that, you know, uh, it's true that the culture wars are essential in terms of, you know, it, it's, we've always said on this podcast, it's not just about what you think, you know, whether or not you can define a woman. It's a fundamental thing of whether you're going to be honest with the, with voters, whether you're actually able to, yeah. you know, reflect reality, all those things. It's, it's not about, just a silly thing to no, laugh at and say, ha, yeah, ha, ha, no, it's not. It's, it's a symbol of a much bigger thing, which is, do you actually have some guts to be mm. able to say what, you know, black is black and white is white. Um, but the, but, you do also have to say that saying I know what a woman is, it is a, a low bar in politics <laughs> yeah. when so much is going on in terms of, that's why I think the tax thing matters. And I can't believe I'm saying that because tax <laughs> is so boring, please, my God. But it matters because it shows, as Tom says, the complete homogeneity of all of them, mm. which is that the, you, you really boils down to, you know, they're talking passionately about national insurance and you think, are you serious? You know, there is a, there's not to keep talking about the cost of living crisis, but electricity bills are going to be through the roof again in the thousands yeah. in a few months. 
And this is all you have. And I'm afraid Kemi, Kemi Bernardinok has not got anything radically different to Rishi Sunak on that. But then on the other hand... In Took a, the piss out of net zero though, which yes. I think is actually quite significant. Mm. And it's not just her as other candidates have obviously raised this. The Tory right in general, I think, is in part running against net zero. But I think that's a good example of how that's one thing which would be genuinely quite useful is that yeah. we just at least open a conversation about something which was completely locked off. Remember the last election, it was in everyone's manifestos. You didn't mm. really have a chance, you have a choice about it. You had a choice between net zero by 2035 or net zero by 2050. Mm. And I think there's actually in a, in a small way, although you know, Tory leadership races are always quite deadeningly dull and they're played to a particular selectorate and all the rest of it. It's been interesting how, how particularly the candidates on the right of the party have introduced some of these issues yeah. around culture, ECHR and Suella Braverman's case, and also the question of net zero. Because the Tory party does need to have that conversation. Politics needs to have that conversation, I think. Yeah, I mean, it needs to be blown apart, really, just because, you know... You're right, Tom. Net zero was in the Tory manifesto and all the manifestos, but all it said was we're going to build, so we're going to plant some trees. Mm. It didn't go. It didn't say how we're planning to yeah. ban your petrol car, <laughs> how you're going to not be able to sell your home if you don't have the right insulation, all that, all that kind of stuff that is coming down the line for someone in future, presumably, to have to implement. And you have to take your hat off to Cami in that she did say. I think she described it net zero as being like unilateral, unilateral. economic disaster. Yeah, which is yeah. what a line. And, and you know that's that's great. She then went on to talk about how it was really important to introduce electric cars and you're like oh <laughs> James Woodhausen who's writes for Spike regularly pointed out well that's not going to be relevant for anyone for 30 or 40 years so this is what I'm saying is this you know there is so much at stake at the moment politically on really substantial issues like fundamental questions of the economy fundamental questions around foreign policy and so many and and yet we're having this debate not i want to have the debate about cultures but yet we're having this debate about tax and things like that it yeah. feels so paltry but then you know anyone anyone other than rishi sunak i mean his performance on the today program this morning <clears throat> where he tried to get, garner sympathy from listeners by saying well i don't think you should i don't think you should care about my bank account i think you should care about what you say and you think have some, some self-awareness <laughs> he just came across like a rich prick basically it was terrible and had no ideas whatsoever and was incredibly defensive just uh, you know who was it that described him uh, brendan was it on spiked as the you know the head boy the head boy it, from hell yeah, yeah. the head boy from hell it's just i would back you know i i really don't like penny morden i really don't like liz trust and then you know as tom says kemi badnock is probably the best she can do i think is to put pressure on the other people from the, with the issues but my god if we get rishi sunak it's just going to be what a what a situation sunak is the technocrat candidate mm. right so i mean he's the obviously he's the favorite from within the mps but he's widely seen from, by people who are presumably not Tory voters as mm -hmm. well, as the kind of acceptable face of, of the party. No, definitely. And obviously, not least because he's the front runner, but also in general, you've seen a lot of Remainers in the Tory party rowing behind him, you know, the kind of establishment Remain types, mm. Jeremy Hunt folding behind him quite neatly, all the rest of it. Um, and there has always been that thing during the pandemic as well, where he was kind of seen as, to a certain extent, the sort of opposite of Boris Johnson, the cool-headed technocrat, as you were saying, uh, the competent one. But then, you know, there's not, you've got the technocrat, you've got um, the NAF Thatcher Tribute Act, um, <laughs> you've got the kind of woke backtracker, and you've got the culture warrior. And, and you've got the weird army one as well. Don't oh, Tom Tugendhat, yeah. Who's hanging on because he's so desperate to be on telly. <laughs> Who was in the army. He was in the army. <laughs> yep. He wants to invade everyone, he wants to expel all the Russians. <laughs> No, but that's what that's one thing that everyone seems to remember is not that long ago, as you say, we say that not all Russians all should Russians. be cast out of the country. No yeah. one that unserious should 
ever be <laughs> considering being the prime minister of the, of the country. What a dreadful thing to be behind. And, you know, the the debate, obviously, is in, in so many respects is really, really lacking. I think it shows the lack of authority a lot of these figures have. I think the fact that Penny Morden has come out of absolutely nowhere yeah. uh, just demonstrates how fluid and how kind of lacking in stature a lot of people, even in the cabinet, were. Mm. Insofar as Rishi Sunak really has a fart in his hands, Sajid Javid didn't even make it through. All of this stuff, I think, speaks to those, that problem that the Tory party has, which is that it's really kind of thrashing around, not really knowing what it's for. But if it is a choice between the technocrat, the Thatcher Tribute Act, the guy who wants to go with everyone and the culture warrior, I think the culture warrior would win it for me. But again, it um, would be amazing if they'd not made it through to the actual members' vote, given the fact that I think the Tory party, particularly the parliamentary Tory party, just haven't got a clue about who would even be you know, the best fist of it in this situation. Yeah. Now, Ella, you, you tried to make us swerve the question of willies, but we've got to talk about it because Penny Morden has come out saying that Margaret Thatcher famously said every prime minister needs a willy and I'm a woman and I haven't got one. Which Why is, is this significant? <laughs> which is her latest statement today on you know gender. Or <laughs> we've whatever. probably missed one <laughs> while we're recording this. She's just, I, I think it shows that... Also a sneaky statement because... The exact wording would imply that she, as a woman, might not have one. That's but there true. might also be women who do have them. Yeah, well, so, this is the confusing thing about Morden. You know, there's all this, there's all this kind of speculation about whether or not her flip flopping on the question of gender is to do with a family member who's involved in the whole kind of LGBT scene and and campaigning and things like that. Her links to Stonewall. She basically feels like somebody who someone described her as someone who repeats what was last whispered in her ear, which is you know something that actually Johnson was very like. Yeah, but. On the fundamentals, you know, in the question of taking a position of saying trans women are women and trans men are men in Parliament to defy your own party, which she, which she did, you know, after they'd told her to vote a certain way, you know, is it, it says something about you, which is that they, she knows that the only people who are going to lap that up are a certain constituency on Twitter. She must know that, the, particularly the majority of women who, and actually, on a side note, she's she's one of the only candidates who's been fairly decent on voting on abortion rights. So she knows what's important for women, but for some, but she's you know, time and again sold out that position on women's rights. So well, you, men can have abortions as well. Yeah, well, <laughs> so you know, that's how she squared that circle. Yeah. But the dishonesty is a problem. Them, yeah, right? because there is no two ways about it. A few years ago, she was really in with gender self ID. Um, there was obviously the row that Suella Braverman has raised in relation to the change of legislation allowing her to go on maternity leave. This dra original drafting of it that referred to pregnant people, I mm. believe, um, Morden trying to wash her hands of that now. Although Braverman saying that her fingerprints were all over it to mix a metaphor, like all of that is very, very clear. And she is just being kind of dishonest and dissembling about all of this now. And that's just you. I think you made this point for. You can either conclude one of two things. She's lying or she flip-flops like no one's business, yeah. even on the question of what does biological sex mean? And that's not exactly a brilliant qualification to lead a country in a time of immense economic and global crisis, is it? <laughs> so this week saw the release of a landmark report into the grooming gang scandal in Telford. We learned that over a thousand children had been abused in this single West Midlands town. The similar pattern to previous grooming gang scandals where you have the authorities not taking an interest, not wanting to stir the pot in terms of kind of racial politics, treating the girls as essentially to blame for this. Tom, what have you made of it? It's the scale of it is really staggering. I think that's one of the things that has really shocked people 
It's amazing it didn't make more front pages. Someone else pointed this out. I mean, I know we're in the middle of the Tory leadership race, but as we've just spoken about, it hasn't exactly been a battle of the wits of the highest level so far, has it? Mm. It hasn't grabbed the attention of the country, but something like this, you know, when the originally this investigation was started, because the Sunday Mirror had an investigation in the newspaper in 2018, and at that point they came up with this 1,000 figure. And um, obviously it was very shocking, um, but even at the time the authorities and the police were saying this was sensationalist, they'd made, the quote was they'd made this up on the back of a fag packet. Mm. Now this report has come out, they've said that those numbers are basically probably quite accurate. So from the 1980s onwards, essentially, a thousand girls, roughly speaking, affected by all of this. There was even points in the report which talk about it's becoming generational, yeah. becoming so sort of normalised, so not dealt with. And the details, even though they are strikingly similar to what happened in Rotherham and Oxford and all these other places, Huddersfield that we've talked about previously, um, again, the horror of them, I don't think, and the sort of moral depravity of the situation, it's, it's impossible to ignore. You know, the discussions around essentially teachers, the police, senior members in the council being aware of this for many, many years, but be, being fearful of um, tackling it because of the fact that this grooming gang, as in so many other cases, is predominantly Pakistani Muslim men. Uh, they didn't want to be labelled racist. They didn't want to inflame community tensions. At one point in the report, it says that they feared a race riot would break out mm. if they tried to tackle this particular issue. And as you say as well, uh, a tendency essentially towards victim blaming. The point in the report, they talk about how the authorities treated the children as common prostitutes. Some of them were actually arrested and charged yeah. and fined and things for their crime which is shocking as their abusers are walking free. Um, so at this point, it is one in a long list of these scandals to stick on top of the pile. But I think this one's really got to hammer home the, the, the shocking dereliction of duty and essentially that, real, that really messed up place that political correctness has got us into, which is it's essentially, in the minds of all of these people and these local authorities, it's essentially better to turn a blind eye to the rape of children mm. than it is to risk being called racist. That's what has happened time and time and time again across Britain. And we desperately need to get ourselves out of that. Ella, I mean, there's a class element to this as well, isn't there? I mean, these girls, working class, many of them in care, just don't matter in the way that, say, a parliamentary aide might matter. Or, you know, I was thinking about the woman who um, was upskirted at a music festival and mm -hmm. they came up with a law in response to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the contrast is huge, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, you, it makes you think of something like, you know, the, the murder of Sarah Everard, mm. which is that it's difficult to talk about that because you don't want to do down the seriousness of, of that incident. And I'm glad it got, you know, widespread attention and that people talked about it because know, it, yeah. yeah, every murder deserves to be talked about. But you do have to step back and think, hang on a minute, there, there is, um, you know, such kind of focus on that, on a, on, you know, a, it's, it's hard to say it, but you know, a middle-class woman who has something happened to her and shouldn't have happened to her, and then really genuinely just absolute silence and sort of complete dismissal of working-class girls in a, in a you know particular in a contrasting part of the country in basic in shit neighbourhoods rather than in nice London neighbourhoods, um, who no one wants to talk about because, as Tom says, it's there's the difficulties of the kind of political correctness question, but also because these women are treated like dirt in mm. in many aspects of their life. They're forgotten in education. Social services don't want to deal with them properly. The, the police treat them like you know. Never mind all this stuff about the police having kind of sending 
misogynistic texts and and there being all this stuff about you know that all these baronesses are upset about what about the police as tom pointed out that the report showed literally criminalizing women who are and girls children who have been victims of abuse um it does show a, a vast class dynamic and it, it you know it makes you think that there are certain women who are deserving of attention and support and being raised in parliament and raised in speeches and have campaigns made around them and then there are certain women who don't matter so tom we have here the wrong kind of victims mm but also the wrong kind of perpetrator for people to take an interest or people don't want to be seen to be, you know, intervening in these yep. circumstances. No, exactly. And it's the, it's the picture that we've seen in so many of these individual cases, you know, we could reel them all off now that there has been this recurring problem. Uh, the grooming gangs phenomenon, at least in terms of the high profile cases, um, the ones that we all know about are predominantly Pakistani Muslim men. There is, of course, a fierce debate about what that means, to what extent you can generalise, and what the broader picture actually looks like. Uh, there was this Home Office review in 2020 that came out looking at all of the data. It essentially says that it's too patchy. There's not yeah. a good enough recording of particular ethnicities. Uh, not enough people, uh, not enough of it is... Um, kind of centralised and reported. Uh, there is some studies from like 2013, which seem to suggest that again, the data is very patchy, but from what they've looked at, there is this uh, disproportion in relation to people who are reported as Asian men. But even then that's complicated because mm -hmm. of the fact that as a lot of um, Sikh organisations, for instance, have pointed out that, that it's predominantly Pakistani Muslim in many of these cases that we're talking about. The one thing that we can say for sure is that in all of these big high profile cases we've talked about, there is this recurring problem. It's been talked about by individuals in those areas for a very long time. Uh, Anne Cryer, former Labour MP, raised this in 2003 um, mm. in relation to Keeley, just outside of Bradford, where again, this problem was there. The picture remains the same. What we definitely know is that whether or not this is representative, whether or not we can extrapolate, is that there is a clear issue with these grooming gangs, predominantly Pakistani Muslim, uh, who are not only operating in this fashion uh, and kind of moving across different areas, kind of, uh, again, kind of, it's rape, it's gang rape, it's prostitution, murder in many often cases, but that it's also ignored. Mm. And it's always ignored for exactly the same reason. You look at um, the report into what went on in Rotherham, it's a very similar situation. What went on at Oxford, a very similar situation, where on the one hand you have... Um, the victims being treated um, essentially like dirt, as we've been talking about, but also time and time again, a fear of being called racist, a fear of stirring racial tensions, and therefore a kind of paralysis about intervening. That we can definitely say for certain, that we definitely need to tackle, because what does that say about us? Yeah. That we genuinely prize just maintaining some sort of pristine multicultural image over genuine severe abuse that has not been going on over the course of a few years, but in the case of Telford, it's going on for... 40 years and that's something that we've really got to get to grips with and it's it's you've got to have a pretty low view of everyone in society of all backgrounds if you think it's impossible to have that conversation without all hell breaking loose there's a secondary issue as well which is you know i don't like talking about police resources because it always feels you know it's it's a bit of a lame argument the suggestion that police don't have enough resources but genuinely you we are in this weird situation in which there is so much focus on online hatred for women of which you know basically means you know people calling women you know, saying inappropriate comments or like calling women fat or something and the police endlessly talk about what they're doing to fight you know misogyny hate crime which yeah. as we have explained on this podcast millions of times can mean anything under the sun and it's and the main point is it's so easy it's it's not proper policing it's just like 
basically kind of surveilling and monitoring. And surprise, surprise, none of the resources go to the difficult cases where there needs to be some actual kind of serious police work um, of getting into the communities and finding out what's going on. And, you know, you, you end up being very cynical about the role of the police because they have all the, they celebrate the fact that they're doing all this stuff for women in terms of hate crime and things like that. And then at the same time, you have thousands of women being failed. So ha- the, the police have to answer some serious questions. And we ourselves as a society who are sort of, you know, continuously clamoring for more and more legal protections from the police yeah. need to say, hang on a minute, you know, when there is actual crime happening where people are being killed and raped and things like that, that's where you need a police officer not in the kind of safe discussions around either tweets or, you know, politicians calling for police to basically surveil women on the street. And I think that di- that distinction has to be made. Again, this sort of just speaks to your earlier point, Tom, the sort of depravity of political correctness, mm-hmm. you know, hurty feelings coming across racist are seen as infinite, infinitely worse than actual, you know, violent crime. No, completely. And there's, there's something about our culture which essentially thinks it's... Um, good and proper and necessary to ignore and to silence and to censor uncomfortable truths. And I think the thing about the grooming gang scandal in Telford and everywhere else is that it completely explodes that myth. Um, It's the road to horror, really, in Mm. many respects. If you refuse to talk about some of these uncomfortable issues, if you refuse to police some of the most grotesque crimes imaginable, they will get worse. This is another recurring factor across these reports is that the perpetrators actually become emboldened. There's Mm. cases of them denouncing uh, the court process as racist, for instance, because of the fact they've adopted and they recognise this particular script. Um, And this is, I think, there's always a lot of talk at these points, this very anodyne language about lesson learned. We do right by... um, the victims, we need to make sure that we learn all the lessons of this process. I think that's the number one thing that has to get across, which is that if you don't talk about these problems, you genuinely inflame them. And if your concern is about tension between communities, the worst thing you could possibly do is ignore this. We've talked about this last time this issue came up on the podcast. The conspiracy of silence around this particular issue has been a gift to the far right. Mm. They were the only people talking about it for a very, very long time until about 10 or 15 years ago. and. So again, if we're talking about where to go forward from this, the number one thing before anything else has to be that it's not good or noble to not talk about uncomfortable issues and that it can actually really corrupt us morally and as a society if we refuse to do that. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.